Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, everybody. It has been a minute since we have taken the air. This is the Orange and Black Insider. I'm Anthony Cazenza. He's John Sheeran. We took a little hiatus. It's, it's you know, we've um, had had some time to digest everything about how the year ended and all this kind of stuff. We're going to we do a little season wrap, but uh, I'm coming from a different location than usual. I'm, I'm in a hotel room. Hopefully my Sound and everything is coming in clear, but uh, we're going to still talk some bangles. We're still going to bring you a lot of content as evidenced by that great video that John Sheeran made a few days ago with T. Higgins. Uh, John, what's new, man? Um, Super Bowl week, a little bit different this year than last for us, but uh, how you doing, bud? A lot of things have happened, dude. You hear T. Higgins is going to get traded, man? Like the Bengals are trying to shop T. Higgins now? A lot, a lot of I, chaos I, happens when we go off the air. I, you know what I've heard? I've heard the Chicago Bears would love that based on everything that yeah. Twitter says. It sounds like Chicago Bears are the ones that, whether it's Dan Orlovsky, whether it's Bears blogs or whatever, apparently they think they can just get T. Higgins for whatever kind of draft picks that they want, and uh, that I don't believe is the case. Here's what we're going to do tonight. We are going to kind of do a little bit of a season wrap, maybe do a little couple of, of awards or just kind of accolades, point out a few high performers of, from the Cincinnati Bengals in the 2022 season. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the coaching situations, and then we're going to give a brief free agency outlook. We're going to do more on free agency as the weeks and days and months. Uh, it's actually just about a month away, really, but um, we're going to do more on that as we as we dive into into more and then obviously we'll do some free agency profiles and that sort of thing like we've done we'll do more on the draft obviously as the months days weeks pass so we'll be getting you a lot of different stuff and uh, we'll be getting you more stuff kind of like what john provided on the channel but if you did if you're an audio on the audio side we love you but you also gotta subscribe to our youtube channel to get some of that exclusive content there and of course being a member of the YouTube channel. We love our members and we appreciate the support there. We appreciate everybody tuning in live, tuning in after the fact. We love you all. It was a great season by the Cincinnati Bengals, John Sheeran. Not, I, you know, a more talented team, but a really, uh, they came a game short of what they achieved last year. But I, I think you can say this was a more talented team this year. And, the, the road to get back to the Super Bowl this year was much more arduous for this team than it was last year. I mean, I think they got on a tear late and, you know, kind of 
got some squeak victories through the through the postseason there, and it was a it was an exciting postseason. This this postseason, a little bit of the same there, but um, you know you, you look at it, and the Bengals were one game short of coming back to the Super Bowl for the second consecutive season. Obviously, some chatter from the Chiefs and all of that, but uh, a, a high quality season, and again, kind of proving that the Bengals window is open for the foreseeable foreseeable future this championship window well they really did build off of everything that they accomplished in 2021 now obviously they didn't get as far they came up a game shy but they overcame expectations in two separate ways in both years right in 2021 they weren't expected to go to the playoffs at all and they and they get in as a divisional champ and then they weren't expected to go to the super bowl they did that as well and then coming into this past season the expectations wasn't for them to go back to the playoffs for, for whatever reason. Right. The expectation was for regression. Like there was still an acceptance or just a realization that the team was good, but not everything was going to click like it did last year. And they did exactly what we talked about and what a lot of Bengals people, analysts and fans have talked about. Like there were things that they could build upon and they could improve on and they could be more consistent with. with. And it took them about five or six weeks to really get that down. But once they did, they reeled off win after win after win and put themselves in the upper echelon of NFL teams. And that was uh, it's pretty close to the best case scenario as you could have accomplished, right? 12 and four probably would have been 13 and four had they played a full 17 game schedule, which would have been the best season in franchise history. It feels weird with how the season ended, like going into the, the Bills game that never was. There was just a lot of optimism and, and high spirits about how great this team was but it, the season the regular season at least ended on such a weird and almost sour note for the team it, it almost kind of diminished what they what they had accomplished to get to that point and then you started to see like you know the re, rejuvenation of spirits after the bills win in the playoffs and again that you, you face the same team four times and 13 months in that high leverage of a game sometimes it's not always going to go your way so there's so much to be proud of if you're you know for for this team and the players and everyone kind of involved with the organ with the organization and yeah it's just a matter of where they go from here you can make a compelling argument i think that there is more as much maybe maybe more obviously different things though to be proud of about this cincinnati Bengals team over last year and i know they didn't make it to the super bowl obviously but you're talking about another win over the chiefs in the regular season you're talking about high quality wins a very tough schedule that uh, the Bengals made it through as you said one of the most bizarre kind of last few weeks of the season that a team could endure and then you get to the playoffs a harder opening round game with the Baltimore Ravens than you had last year hosting the the Raiders, I think. And then, of course, you get the, you know, everybody's preseason Super Bowl darling, the Buffalo Bills. You go into Buffalo and absolutely trample them. Uh, and then you take it down to the wire against Kansas City again. And, you know, what, what, like you said, during that beginning of the season, all the chatter of the 0-2 start and, man, this team's struggling. They're not going to make it back. They're not as good. And they kind of shut everybody up. And, you know, three points away from making a second consecutive Super Bowl. And that game was very, very close. They had their opportunities. We discussed that on last last week's show. But, you know, I think there's just there still is a lot to be proud of with this this team. And it looks like they're headed in a really good direction for the foreseeable future, which is a very good feeling. And, you know, sustained success has not been a Cincinnati Bengals stable over the years, as we know. So especially sustained success in the postseason 
that is definitely not a staple of them. But let's talk. I don't know if we want to do awards, John. I don't know if we want to just kind of point out some of the the big, um, you know, the big performers this year. You know, I think obviously MVP is is pretty easy. Probably point to the quarterback there, but I think a pretty, you know, I, I think we can't overlook the impact of of the two wide receivers on this team. And I was really personally impressed with T Higgins. And I know we kind of joked about him being a trade target this week. And I say that because a lot of times when there's this, you know, a lot of people tout this one, a one B wide receiver group, uh, whether it's the Bengals or other teams and other teams, you see that one B guy have to go to that starter role where they get all, all of the attention because of an injury to the other star wide receiver. And it doesn't always go very well. And when chase went down with an injury, I think we were all going, oh, boy, this is where this season starts to take a tailspin. Bengals went three and one. T. Higgins had two 100-yard receiving games in those four games. Um, and really just he's always been, a, you know, a high point target guy. You know, you can he's got sneaky downfield ability because of the size and his ability to outleap defenders. Uh, and, and then he's just, a, you know, a chain moving guy third down monster. I, you know, I, I love all the things Jamar Chase does, but I think we saw a particular value as we look back on this year of what T Higgins does with this offense, particularly when Jamar Chase was out of the lineup. Yeah. That stretch specifically, no one knew what the offense is going to look like. And T just really stepped up and became that integral part of the offense that the offense just kind of moves with and it moves because, and you just saw that, throughout this season at different times like he dominated the Dolphins and the Jets earlier in the season when I believe he was battling like multiple concussions at least against the Jets Um, there was I think there was at least two or three touchdowns that weren't touchdowns that Higgins either caught or he barely dropped throughout the season so he only only technically had eight on the season but it could have been uh, closer north of 10 he just had a really really productive season just on the outside of I believe like the top 10 or 15 in terms of of yards per game throughout the season battling minor injuries here and there but just really showcased his toughness also a great guy to talk to in person and in over stream yards yeah. so that was that was a great opportunity that we had shameless self-promotion go check out that interview yeah yeah definitely check out that interview um but yeah just a, a great season from him and i think he's, he's really developed into everything that i think they hoped for coming out of clemson definitely wasn't a finished product coming out of college, but not all 20, 21 year old guys out of college entering the NFL are, but he's really developed everywhere. I just, I have to go back to to chase though, just because of the evolution of how he had to just progress this season after last, like both these years, including the playoffs, he had, I think almost exactly 150 or 155 total targets, but the way that those targets came to him were completely different compared to his rookie season and his second season because the NFL just had to take notice of what he could do and how he could torch single high defenses in man coverage. And the the entire shift in defensive philosophy for facing the Bengals is was primarily because of what Jamar Chase could do. And defenses had to do that, and it, Chase and the Bengals had to adjust because of that. And it wasn't always pretty, especially in the beginning of the season. Burrow you know, clearly wasn't... Uh, his, his full self to entering the season and that kind of impacted Chase's production but even still week one I think Chase had like 100 yards or so on 10 catches and a touchdown on like 90 or 100 snaps played in that game so 
no matter what defenses tried to do, Chase still got his. He had a, a dominating game against the Falcons with a bad hip that that made him f- sit out for the next four weeks. Right, right. He had to recover from that, and then his first game back against the Chiefs, he almost put up a hundred yards there, even when he wasn't his full self. Even against the Saints, that was when the game he got injured, and he had the game when he touchdown that probably saved the Bengals' season from going to, to a full blown collapse at, a, at like a two and four start. Chase just overcame every obstacle in his way this season and had another phenomenal year and still made the Pro Bowl despite missing four games in an NFL where receiving talent is just beyond the roof. He's just truly special and is already an elite talent after you too. Yeah, I mean, touchdown in the in the Pro Bowl as well, so you like yeah. that. Uh, look, I mean, obviously the wide receivers, including Tyler Boyd, um, just a great year from them. Some nice moments from Trent Trenton Irwin as well on offense. Um, and so, I mean, a lot of contributors – a lot of new faces, be it from free agency or the draft. I think you had a lot of good contributors. I think Hayden Hurst was a nice addition. We'll talk about him in just a little bit as we talk about free agent and pending free agents and whatnot. Um, but he was a guy that I think, you know, third down, kind of those drag routes, those little out routes, and hit, let him muscle his way forward for another few yards to get that first down. He was a, a high-effort machine, a guy that just did a lot of good things for this team as an ancillary weapon and – I think a lot of people would like to see him back for a number of, of different reasons. But as we as we go on, one of the guys, too, we have to look at the secondary this year, John, because they lost what arguably um, their best player. You could probably say Jesse Bates is the best player in that secondary, but you, you have arguments to say, well, Vaughn Bell is the best player. Well, Jesse Bates is the best player. Well, Chidobi Awuzie uh, definitely has an argument of being one of the best players and quietly one of the better corners in this league. And Eli Apple had to step up. And while there were still some stumbles from him, um, there were still some solid performances from him still playing his best, the best football of his career with the Cincinnati Bengals. But again, shameless self-promotion, favorite of the show, Cam Taylor Britt, a guy we talked to in the summer, um, just an outstanding young man from you know a personality standpoint and just our, our chat with him. And please go check out that one too when you get a chance. But uh, you know, I, I, this, he's one of those guys He's kind of the the poster child, if you will, of this draft class that started to kind of blossom a little bit as the year wore on. And that's what you like to see. I mean, Volson, there's talk about, well, he actually technically could have been the weak link on the offensive line. Um, there were some nice moments from him, some nice moments late in the season, particularly against the Buffalo Bills from this young man here. And then, of course, you know, Dax Hill had a play late in the year that was important in the postseason. Um, you had Zachary Carter doing some things as well on the, on the defensive line. So, uh, you know, we started to see some corners being turned, pardon the phrase and the pun there, with, with some of these young guys at the end of the year here, particularly in high-profile postseason games. Taylor Britt's season is extraordinary, no matter how you look at it. Because, I mean, the guy wasn't a first-round pick, but he was the he was the highest draft pick that the Bengals have traded up for, and I think over 25 years, like, them trading up in the second round is pretty much unheard of. And they did it targeting this guy, you know, Zach Taylor's first Nebraska Cornhusker that he's drafted, former Nebraska Cornhusker quarterback. And there were expectations with him to come in and start immediately. That was never really the plan. They always wanted Eli Apple to start. But that plan would have been, if Taylor Britt were to be the starter going into the season, it wouldn't happen anyways because he got hurt in the preseason, right? He, he gets placed on injured reserve and he misses the first six weeks 
of the season. So you're thinking, okay, this this year is essentially a redshirt season, just like his fellow rookie teammate Tyson Anderson at safety. We're not really going to see much of him because if he can't get on the field, he's not going to see the field that much in a Luna Rumo defense where he just praises communication and chemistry and these level 500 or 5,000 courses that, you know, really taxing on a young player. But instead, he plays for Eli Apple in week seven and has a couple of good moments, but he's still a little rocky out of the gate. But then he's thrown into the fire once Awuzie goes down with a torn ACL. He's playing opposite of Eli Apple and pretty damn quickly he develops into a solid cover yep. corner. He didn't have he had some, you know, up and down moments, but that's to be expected out of a rookie, especially playing arguably the toughest position to play aside from quarterback as a rookie. And by the time he was settled in, he looked settled in. Like he was always an aggressive tackler. He was always a physical player in coverage, but he really started to settle in with what the Bengals were asking him to do, dropping back into zone and staying with these guys and just being a really productive player as a 23-year-old rookie and this very hard secondary to kind of mesh in with. The fact that he turned himself into a solid starter after the start of the season, dealing with injuries and not getting any playing or practice time is pretty extraordinary, and the Bengals have to be really happy about where they have or about what they have opposite of Wouzier going into 2023. Yeah, it was the core injury, I think, that he had in the in the offseason, right, or the in training camp that kept him out, really. Um, but a guy really, I mean, you look back at that bills game, John, and it was like, man, from, from minute one in that game, he was hammering wide receivers. He had the late interception. Yeah. Yeah. Really did. And that, and I think when you look at just how poorly the bills performed on offense in that game, you have to look at players like that. You have to look at, um, you know, Eli Apple in that game too. And just, you know, it was of course, Jesse Bates and, and Von Bell doing their thing too, but I was really impressed with this young man here. And I, we got a couple of comments from one of our, um, one of our members. And of course we, we did leave out Ted Karras, Michaela Garfield, one of our members who we love. Uh, Ted Karras should probably be mentioned. He was right there in terms of new, new guys, I think is what she's referencing there. Of course, Ted Karras. Yes. Big shout out to him and a guy that was a locker room leader. It had an effect immediately. He and Kappa, particularly of the four new starters, were the guys that were most effective and just kind of had the biggest impact there. Um, now, it wasn't a perfect line, particularly from the get-go, but there was a stretch, John. And you can argue, too, that it might have been against that weak NFC South. But there was a stretch towards the middle, kind of towards the end of the season before the injury started racking up that this line was performing at a pretty high level. You look back at that Joe Mixon game where he had the five touchdowns against the Carolina Panthers. You look at, you know, a couple of nice games from Joe Burrow, and you saw some some good line play, at least more steady. And that's what really is such a bummer about this postseason because Bengals didn't really have a fair shake when you lose your starting right tackle, your starting center is hobbled in that final game there. You're, you're – your stud right guard is out of the lineup. Your left tackle's out of the lineup. I mean, you kind of go, well, man, what what could have happened in that Chiefs game if they just had, you know, two of those four guys fully healthy, you know? But um, it is what it is. The Bengals need to assess that in the offseason. But definitely, Karras deserves a tip of the cap, too. I mean, Karras, it goes beyond just what he did on the field. Like, he was one of the more consistent centers in the league. Like, I almost considered voting him to be a pro bowler just because he just really didn't have any blemishes throughout the season. Now, obviously, being center, you're not tasked with that difficult of pass protection, you know, tasks 
as an offensive lineman, but he was still a really solid player throughout the season. There was no weaknesses in his game, but I think it was more the leadership that he brought immediately. Like he was a free agent signing, but you know, he's been around the block. He's won two Super Bowls. He came in with that championship mindset. And I feel like towards the middle of the season, when I think it was just after they suffered a loss and he was being talked to by reporters and it was just the back, the fact that we're not gonna have a bad practice, you know, we're going to keep a good mindset and we're going to keep pushing forward and we're going to get this win. And I believe they won the next week. Right. So you could sense that at least from the outside that Karis brought that veteran leadership and that needed leadership that that group specifically needed after coming together with four new faces, the chemistry that it required for them to eventually mold into a solidified group was definitely needed. And I feel like that was started with Karis. Yeah. And just because punters, kickers, and special teamers are people too, we will talk a little bit about that as well. Uh, not the the most, not, not, I don't know if I want to call it a rocky season from the special teams or it wasn't a bad season, but oddly enough, John, the guy that I am most impressed with in the special teams unit is Cal Adamitis. Uh, I mean, you can talk about Evan McPherson and obviously of uh, the big kicks that he continued to make. Um, unfortunately, you know, Drew Chrisman, he had a couple of good games and some others down the stretch where, you know, he kind of quite literally out kicked the coverage or hit line drives and it just didn't work out as well. Trent Taylor had a couple of nice returns on the year, but nothing that was Pac-Man Jones-esque as a punt returner. But you have a guy who comes in week two. He couldn't come in in week one because he wasn't active. He comes in week two. Uh, an undrafted rookie, right? And is a guy that just comes in and it was, uh, it was steady. It was absolutely what the Bengals needed because you saw the impact of what happened when Clark Harris left with that freak injury and how the Bengals lost that Steelers game essentially because he was not healthy. And so they had to resort to Mitchell Wilcox, who by the way, ended up being a nice little ancillary weapon for the Bengals too, and did a lot of nice things down the stretch. But, um, Adam Itis just coming in and just sliding it on in there and just let's let's keep the machine going. Um, to me, that that had to be pretty impressive given the situation, giving the youth and everything with that entire scenario. It was very impressive that I, I mean, he made people kind of forget about Clark Harris, right? Like, and that's impressive yeah. considering how, Pro how yeah, right. But like, yeah, I mean, he's a long snapper and you don't really realize how much you need competency there until you realize that you do need it. So the fact that they were able to get a rookie who in fairness was, I believe the best long snapper in college football in his last year, like the fact that they were able to sign him, get him into the building and just have him prepped in case he was needed is very important. And I, just, we can go on for over an hour about all the players on the roster, but I do want to give some final shout outs all having to do with injury, whether they stepped up because of it or they had to persevere yep. Despite it, Trent Irwin, probably the surprise of the year. Like we, we knew that he could play in some in some scenarios like in the preseason. But the fact that whenever the Bengals had an injury at receiver, whether it was Chase, whether it was T Higgins, the fact that he could come in, play all three spots and just actually be a weapon for Joe Burrow is nothing short of astounding. And he deserves sure. all the credit that he's got. DJ Reader. He was on this monstrous pace before he suffered a torn at MCL yep. that forced him to miss six, seven weeks. Then he came back and was essentially the same player despite missing all that time, despite that injury. This, he, the fact that he overcame it and battled through the recovery and everything and still be, 
was an elite player, not only as a run stopper, but as a pass rusher. The fact that he was one of the Bengals' better pass rushers throughout the season as a 340-pound nose tackle was astonishing. And then Trey Hendrickson battling through a, a fractured wrist towards the end of the season, and the pass rushing productivity never really dwindled, despite him having only played like 50% of the snaps towards the end of the season. A lot of guys this year either having missed a lot of time or missed some time here and there, just being toughing it out when you know sometimes you don't always expect that but always being in the building always getting that extra work in it was really this this culture that was established with this team that just had this bond and like you don't really see that that much and i think that was really exuded through these guys having to play through injury because everybody plays through injury all the time in the nfl but these guys like we knew about their injuries we knew that they had reasons to miss yeah. more time or to miss some games and the fact that they they toughed it out for the season is definitely extraordinary. It's a good point. I, I just I, I I sent out a tweet a couple of days ago that got a little bit of traction, but I just imagine if you had that pass rush that you were getting from DJ Reader and that push from him, what you get from BJ Hill and then what you get from the edge defenders, including now Joseph Osai, who started to turn a nice corner at the end of the year too. Um, you you look at if you had one additional constant other inside presence um, to rotate in with those guys as a pass rushing, what, what essentially a Larry Ogunjobi, um, what Larry gave you in, in 21, if you're able to do that, man, that that defensive line would have really taken a, a, another nice step forward, but yeah, good call on, on some of those omissions there, but again, not really. I mean, we could do awards, but I mean, MVPs and all that kind of stuff are pretty, you know, I mean, it's pretty cut and dry when you're talking about the Bengals and Joe Burrow and, and whatnot, but we wanted to kind of run the gamut and talk about some players that we were impressed with uh, this year and, and maybe some ones that are a little under the surface, so to speak. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity, but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. 
Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. But let's let's keep going here, John. I think where we wanted to go next, just to update some folks. Um, and if, if I omit some recent some very recent news please let me know because i have been driving for the past two and a half hours um so if something has happened before we took the air here i kind of scrambled to take the air i don't want to leave anything out but here's here's what's happening essentially brian callahan lou anarumo and dan pitcher are getting various looks uh for head coaching uh vacancies and it looked as if uh for the arizona cardinals i don't know that any announcements have officially been made as of yet but the Arizona Cardinals have whittled it down seemingly to Mike Kafka and Lou Anarumo. Uh, Callahan was, I think, in with the Arizona uh, Arizona job, but also with the Colts job uh, as well. And then uh, Pitcher is getting, I believe, some offensive coordinator looks in Tampa Bay after they let Byron Leftwich go. Um, and Pitcher, unfortunately, if he does take that job, he is not going to be having Tom Brady, as we all know. He just... Uh, retired so kind of a little bit of a transition going on at, at down south there but did i miss anything as i was traversing through lovely southern california traffic today john i think that's kind of where we're at with a lot of things yes so arizona is not going to announce a head coach until the conclusion or after the conclusion of the super bowl um they have the second the second interview with Anarumo, I believe that's scheduled for Friday. They had the second interview for, with Kafka earlier this week, so it's just down to those two. Callahan was informed that he wasn't in the running, but he is still in the running for the Colts job. Ursay said, Jim Ursay, I should say, uh-huh. said that that decision's coming within the next few days. I would assume that's also going to be like right after the Super Bowl because you don't really hear a lot of head coaching hires like in the days leading up to this, just because all the attention is on the Super Bowl, but. It's Jim Irsay. He's unpredictable, so maybe they'll announce it within the next couple of days. But yes, Callahan is still in the running with, with for that job, along with uh, incumbent Jeff Saturday and I believe Aaron Glenn, who's a, the defense coordinator for the Detroit Lions. And Dan Pitcher just had a second interview with the Bucks today for the offense coordinator. So I just want to I, I, I want to say I, I want to go with this a little bit, and I don't want to dwell too long on this because uh, some, most, or all of these may or may not get these jobs for which they are interviewing, right? So it may end up being a moot point if some, most, or all do not get these jobs. Um, it's a good, it, it would be bittersweet because obviously you don't want to lose these guys, but it basically means that the Bengals have been performing at a high level and these guys are very deserving of these jobs. And it's a side note for me, it's really weird to see Anna Rumo get, it's a very similar path to the Mike Zimmer thing, right? Zimmer was in the league forever, and never got a head coaching job and then finally got one with the Vikings and was there and had a modicum of success with them. And so now Lou Anarumo, a guy who's been around the league forever, right? Uh, has not had head coaching jobs and now he could potentially have one. I, part of me with the Arizona thing thinks that they're waiting till after the Super Bowl because uh, I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I don't really know, but I, I do think that there is, intrigue for them with 
Anarumo because he would be the antithesis of the Cliff Kingsbury, right? He's he's defensive defensive coordinator, a little bit more old school um, in terms of mentality and and you know preparation, all that kind of stuff. And they may want to go a completely different direction in that regard than they had with Kingsbury. So uh, that's a coin flip one for me. Um, pitcher, I. I think, you know, obviously his ties to Burrow and the credit that's been given to him, you know, that makes him an appealing candidate. So uh, I don't know what you think about that. And then we could talk maybe about a couple briefly, uh, a couple of potential replacement candidates should these guys go. I always thought that Inarumo had a 50-50 chance of staying or leaving once he got the opportunity to interview with Arizona because I, I just had a feeling that, I mean, he was going to interview well. I'm sure he interviewed well last year with the Giants, but they – ended up getting Brian Dable, who may be coach of the year. So the Giants are really regretting that decision. And now that the Giants offense coordinator, Mike Mike Kafka, has a chance to be the head coach of the Cardinals. It's weird because you would think that with a a quarterback who's making 40-something million dollars per year and he's still not, I guess, at his peak production in Kyler Murray, you would think that the Cardinals would want to get the offense right and they want to get the right offensive mind in there. And you don't know who Anarumo is going to hire as his offensive coordinator to make sure that Kyler Murray performs up to his contract. So, like, I would think that they would still lean offensive. But, again, like, it's just a matter of how Kafka interviews and what he brings to the table compared to Anarumo. And, like you said, like, the antithesis of the hot millennial of Cliff, Cliff Kingsbury, a lot of case there, compared to the rugged, you know, boomer of Anarumo. It's got quite, the, <laughs> quite the shift for, for that new regime in Arizona, who I believe their GM uh, has some history with Inarumo of some of some to some extent. I don't know what that is, but like there was some type of already previous relationship between the the Cardinals GM and Inarumo, but obviously very deserving. And I think there's also this weird conversation where it's like you know Inarumo is one of the best defensive coordinators in the NFL, and he should not subject himself to taking over a franchise that is clearly in the dumps and he's attached to this quarterback who is not living up to his potential but I feel like that's being disingenuous to Anarumo because I feel like he's more than qualified to resurrect a bad franchise and to at least make it competent again like the Cardinals I feel like are going to be more aggressive in this type of reset or rebuild and I feel like you know he's obviously been in a situation where a team has gone from worst to first so he knows what it takes to accomplish that and I feel like he would be able to get it done just as well if not better than Mike Kafka so if if he does get the opportunity I think he would revel in it and I think he'll do a great job with it yeah I I think while you have provided a good counter argument for the Cardinals specifically in terms of them going offensive-minded coach again and by the way Kafka has ties to Andy Reid Patrick Mahomes etc so that's uh you know uh, something that has to appeal to the Arizona Cardinals um and and to your point too their tie now to Kyler Murray and that contract that they have there and I I guess to also play contrarian to my own point and, and piggybacking off of yours you see if you look around you're seeing you know a little bit more success, particularly when you look at the Bengals with some of these offensive minded head coaches, as opposed to the, you know, the Vic Fangio's and other older defensive coordinators who've been around the league for a while. Um, not really doing, but I mean, with the younger offensive offensive minded coaches too, there's, there's risks. I mean, there's Hackett, uh, Kingsbury and, and others that are in the line of kind of, Oh boy, that's, uh, you know, it's <laughs> not looking so good. So it'll be very interesting to see what they do there. Like you said, Ursa is a complete wild card with what he's going to do with the Colts. I don't think, 
I, I know he absolutely loves Jeff Saturday, but I don't think given the PR fallout with that, I don't think they can do that. Um, I think it was nice when he got the one win or whatever that he had uh, when, when he was in there, but there were too many just cataclysmic losses that they suffered under his watch there. And so I don't, I, I just PR hit wise. I don't think they can go that route. I don't know if Callahan's going to be that guy there too. So um, we'll just have to, We'll just have to see. But if you look at replacements, possible replacements, if you're, let's say, Lou Anarumo goes, there are a couple of names that kind of stand out. Marion Hobby, the defensive line coach, kind of stands out. I saw someone in the live chat say Mark Duffner maybe is a guy who has previous defensive uh, coordinator experience with the Bengals. I, I believe defensive coordinator. I know at least minimum linebacker coach. And then, of course, there's also uh, Al Golden who left, uh, he was the Bengals linebacker coach. He became Notre Dame's defensive coordinator. Um, that could be a guy they tap as well as a defensive coordinator replacement. I believe he was under Anarumo uh, a couple of years ago. So those are some that come to the top of my mind, be it in-house or out of house. Yeah, there was a report that Al Golden had some type of meeting or received some type of interest from Cincinnati because now he's with Notre Dame as the I think the defensive coordinator. So yeah, there's obviously past history with him previously working here and that's potentially a, a contingency when regards to outside the organization. Inside in-house replacements, I looked at James Betcher first, the linebackers coach. He was hired this season. He spent five seasons as the defensive coordinator for the Cardinals and then the Giants who, mind you, like that was there was a year overlapping with him and Anaruma working on the same staff with the Giants. So there was already that working relationship with the two guys before Betcher uh, moved on with for the San Francisco 49ers for, I think, a year, and then to the Bengals as the linebackers coach. You have to think, like, back when they replaced Mike Zimmer, they went to Paul Gunther, who was the linebackers coach, who was really involved with the architecture of the defense at the time. I'm not sure what Betcher's role with the team, aside from just being the linebackers coach, is. Like, I don't know if he has to if he's involved with pressures, if he's involved with coverage or anything like that, but he does have defensive coordinator experience. And if you're looking for an in-house replacement, you're trying to think of who has the most knowledge of how to just basically pick up where Anarumo left off because the Bengals have something very special with their defense and how it's just the next man up type of amoeba, ever-evolving type defense that just adapts on a weekly basis. And you might not ever be able to emulate that once Anarumo does eventually leave, whether it's this year or the next year or two years after that, you might not be able to fully emulate it. But I feel like Betcher, with his defensive coordinator experience, with his experience working with Anarumo for multiple years now, I feel like he would be an ideal in-house replacement as well. That's a good. That's a good point. Um, you know, you, there's always the the risk you run there where you kind of like, well, let's just kind of keep things afloat with a guy who's already been on the staff and we've seen mixed results recently with that when the Bengals lost Zimmer. And they brought in uh, Gunther, who was a linebackers coach. And it was, you know, you had initially some success, but some other things where it just wasn't the same when Zimmer left there. But uh, regardless, if you uh, one guy and he may I last I checked, he was interviewing for NFL head coaching jobs or uh, offensive coordinator jobs. I don't know if he got one. He's interviewed with the Baltimore Ravens. He has interviewed for that Tampa Bay Buccaneers offensive coordinator job. It's Todd Todd Monken. Um, who is on the Georgia staff. Not, not only do the Bengals love Georgia guys, uh, University <laughs> of Georgia guys, but Monken was a guy, I think, that was an early uh, candidate that Zach Taylor interviewed uh, for offensive coordinator or some sort of role with the team when he first took over 
this uh, this job, and then he ended up going with Callahan. So that's a name. If he doesn't land with either one of those teams, that could be a guy. Whether it's you know pitcher, I, I would assume if he's interviewing for offensive coordinator jobs, it would be if Callahan leaves, and then he kind of becomes part of the brain trust maybe with with Taylor. I don't know exactly what happened there in terms of maybe there wasn't a fit, but that's a name that popped in my mind because there was a past interview or a past interest there with Zach Taylor and Todd Monken. Yeah, I figured that Monken would be the favorite to land with the Bucks just because he used to coach for the Bucks before he moved on. I believe he went to the Browns and then he went uh, back to the college ranks where he eventually ended up with Georgia and won a national title or two as the offensive coordinator. So he's done a good job of kind of working his way back up to the NFL level. So he has history with Tampa Bay. Um, I feel like that relationship there should help him land the job. But obviously, you know, Pitcher's a little bit younger. He's obviously worked in the NFL more recently. He's worked with an elite quarterback in Burrow. He's going to be an offensive coordinator sooner or later. So it would be a great opportunity for him, even if the Bucks are probably not in a great place from a roster standpoint because they don't have a quarterback answer. Um, yeah, aside from that, like, in-house replacements for Callahan, like I would first look if pitcher does leave for Tampa Bay, like Troy Walters immediately comes to mind with how yep. involved he is yep. with the Reds on offense. And he's already getting looks as the new offense coordinator for the Houston Texans who just hired D'Amico Ryan. So that interview, uh, I believe already happened within the last week, but we haven't really heard any developments with that. And if Callahan does get the Indianapolis Colts job, he's definitely earned it because man, there were reports that the Colts are hosting and holding 12 hour interviews with these guys, which just seems like incredible PR work that says we're doing everything in our power to not hire uh, Jeff Saturday, but we might still hire Jeff Saturday anyways, because our owner's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the latest on some of the coaching uh, news and some of our, I don't know, probably uneducated, uneducated guesses on, um, you know, who may or may not replace some of the Bengals coaches that end up leaving, but We'll see what happens. We're going to spend another couple minutes on some free agent stuff, at least get you up to date on whose contracts are maybe a little bit of outlook in terms of the Joe Burrow contract. And then we are going to start to close things up. So let's uh, let's talk about impending free agents and Joe Burrow's contract extension, because all of that is intertwined, John, and all of that kind of plays into each other. So let's pull up this story on Cincy Jungle here where you can see all of the impending free agents. Of course, the biggest name there, Jesse Bates, uh, playing on the franchise tag. And he keeps saying he wants to be here, but he can't leave the money on the table. And that's the vibe he is getting from the Cincinnati Bengals. But here you go. Um, we're going to have to scroll a little bit. We've got Jesse Bates, Jermaine Pratt, another interesting conundrum there for the Bengals, Von Bell. So all of a sudden the Bengals, look at this too, Eli Apple, corner Trey, Flowers, corner so a lot of secondary questions there. Sharping, who had a couple of good games with the Bengals in relief, but man, that last game, uh, not a good performance by him. So interesting to see if they bring him back from a for a backup kind of situation again. Hurst, questions there. Tight end's going to be really thin too. Drew Sample, uh, Mitchell Wilcox, he is a restricted free agent though, so those are usually pretty easy to keep. Michael Thomas, a, a longtime veteran and a guy who was a special teams uh, staple. And then, of course, you've got questions at running back, including Samaj P. Ryan, Trent Taylor at wide receiver, Brandon Allen, backup quarterback, Clark Harris. We talked about the whole Harris-Adamitis thing. Um, Adamitis is an ERFA, uh, ER I guess. 
exclusive rights free agent Jalen Davis, another cornerback, Travion Williams, who started doing kickoff return duty there. Chris Lammons, a, a defensive back, Joe Batchy, the linebacker, Clay Johnston, a linebacker, both restricted free agents. And so is Elijah Holyfield, um, a running back who is an exclusive right free agent. So a lot of names there, John, some of which would be easy to keep, some of which seem to be, uh, if you're talking about being shown the door, Jesse Bates there. So uh, some big decisions for the Bengals, particularly on defense. So if they do keep Anarumo, they're going to need to figure out what they're doing on that side of the ball with, with these impending free agents. Yeah, just because they're easy to keep doesn't mean that they always stick around. These are obviously fringe roster players for the most part that either had a role and succeeded with it for the most part or didn't really do that much with it. And they're just very expendable, especially with an offseason that's going to feature multiple draft picks and probably close to 15 or 20 college free agent signings. So a lot of competition, obviously, throughout the offseason. And some of these guys, they may come back on a one-year deal, but they may not survive the offseason, right? You just look at the top of the list, though. You have 18 out of 22 incumbent starters still under contract for this season, but the four or five that aren't under contract, most of them play on defense. And it's like, it's almost like a one or neither situation for some of these guys, right? Jesse Bates, pretty much 1% chance that he comes back at this point. Like, Mm -hmm. if it hasn't happened now, Mm -hmm. it's probably not going to happen, which Mm -hmm. leaves the door open for Von Bell, right? There's, if there's no, if there's no Jesse Bates contract on the books, then that gives them an opportunity. It gives them more capital to work something out with Von Bell. But it doesn't really matter like how much cap space they save with not re-signing a guy like Jesse Bates. The Bengals probably have a price point for Von Bell, and Von Bell has a price point for himself. And if the two come to an agreement, then that's what happens. But I, I'm not I'm not going to say that like when Jesse Bates leaves, then Von Bell is 100% going to resign. Like There's still a process that both sides have to come to and eventually come to an agreement on. And that's going to be one of the big things here. Like you're going to have space to bring some of these guys back, but you're also going to look into the immediate future about some of these contracts are eventually going to be on the books. And what's the best way going forward to keep this team competitive? Do you potentially overpay for the sake of continuity? Do you you give Von Bell that raise? Do you give Eli Apple another chance? Do you give Jermaine Pratt what, what he's looking for on the open market for the sake of continuity? Or do you find cheaper, just as good, if not maybe a little bit slightly lesser in terms of like replacements on the open market? Like that's something that the Bengals have to think about, but also at the same time, I think it's genuine when, when players say they want to be here, they want to return and they want to do what they can to do that. But when we're going to talk about, about this with Burrow, the money always comes first and that's what these guys are. That's what, that's what their agents are thinking about. That's what their families are thinking about. And when they have the chance to earn these contracts, they typically go for it. The other thing to take into account there as well is, uh, you know, the, what happens with Lou Anarumo when you're talking about those top four names on there um, for top five names, I think on there with Trey flowers included. I mean, does Lou Anarumo leaving or staying, how big of an impact, how big of a sway does that have? And, or if he does leave who the Bengals hire for that open job, how, how much pull does that have for these guys wanting to stay? Are they going to want to stay regardless of who the defensive coordinator is? As long as Zach's head coach, are they going to want to stay? I mean, they, they probably all love Zach, but I mean, are they going to also want to stay? Hey, I'm, I really want to stay if, if Anna Rumo's here because I've played my most successful ball under him, that sort of thing. So that's another kind of thing to sort out with this. And then, of course, you you kind of hinted at it. This is 
Jamar Chase spoke on Joe Burrow's contract demands or his uh, upcoming contract extension. If you can talk a little bit about this one here. Um, basically, he said Burrow wants to structure his contract to keep his weapons around him. Now, what does that mean? What does that look like? That's just kind of up for debate. It's, it's a good thing on the surface, right? It sounds it sounds good on the surface, but the Bengals are going to need to pay heavy, 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 heavy money for Joe Burrow. Um, and then maybe that's something that's up front. If he's the first guy to get that contract, they do that. And then they work things out down the road. They kick that can down the road in terms of restructuring or whatnot when it comes for a Chase extension, a Higgins extension, or a Higgins franchise tag, or whatever that looks like. But that's kind of what he what he said there, and obviously Chase and Burrow are very tight. Yeah, I mean, Bengals don't restructure anyways, but like even still, like the Chase extension usually is not. next year, right? So you you wouldn't restructure a deal like a year after it happened. To to me, right. the way that Chase worded this is like you know the structure to keep space open for obviously him and T Higgins. To me, that means like just backloading the deal to hell and. I think you're not going to see a lower average annual value than 50 million, right? That like that's where the market is with Aaron Rodgers. There's no there's no logic in Burrow ever taking less than what the established market for the quarterback market is or the established level whatever that is. So, but you can still achieve that average annual value over the life of the deal while also lowering the cap hits in the first handful yeah. of years to keep the space yep. for some of those other extensions. And that's just going to be something that, that they have to think about. Like they're going to, they're going to have to think with all these contracts in mind in unison when, when they're negotiating this, but while still keeping their traditional negotiating tactics alive. So I, I don't know what this looks like, to be honest with you. Like I, I think Mike Brown has mentioned the Patrick Mahomes contract uh, in passing before. And that's basically with rolling guarantees, basically like every year, Patrick Holmes gets like a 30 or $40 million roster bonus that adds onto that year's cap hit, but his salaries are low throughout. And obviously roster bonuses aren't guaranteed years in advance. You don't have to put that cash into an escrow account with Burrow. It could be a very large signing bonus up front. It could just be the Bengals saving up all of these millions of cash from the past year or two with all these sponsorships and deals that they've accrued ever since they've, they've gone on this run it could just be giving him a ginormous signing bonus to make sure that hey you have a lot of money up front but we can prorate that signing bonus so the salary caps for these first handful of years aren't so extraordinary and that that's the benefit of, of having a large signing bonus but again that's that's going against what the Bengals have traditionally done in the past so yeah like it, there's still a lot unknown with with this because we've never seen a Bengals contract of this magnitude before but if Jamar Chase is saying something to this, like I, I'm, I'm not going to doubt him because of his relationship with Burrow. Correct. I'm going to say this. I know we probably don't get a lot of other opposing fans around these parts unless the Bengals are facing those people and, and, or we have special guests that cover the, uh, the opposing team uh, on the program, but I'm just going to throw out a PSA for everybody again, because there's a lot of talking points. We kind of made a joke at the beginning of the show about T Higgins being traded, et cetera. We can talk about past history with the Bengals and paying contracts and all that kind of stuff. They pay the positions they value. And there is a handful of positions that they value. Most of them are on offense. A couple of them are on defense. It's quarterback. It's wide receiver. 
sometimes running back as well, particularly if you look at, you know, Joe Mixon, Corey Dillon, et cetera, they pay, they pay tackles well, and they pay cornerbacks. And you can also see where they draft those players in the draft more often than not. So if we're going to talk about, you know, if the, if this ancillary noise is that there's no way the Bengals are going to pay all these people because of the Brown family and all the Bengals pay quarterbacks, they pay wide receivers. And this quote from Chase talking about keeping the weapons together, keeping the core together, I, you know, I think it all points to, yeah, that's, that's the goal, but I, I think it is feasible in some, in a lot of regards, because this team does pay those positions. And I want to make a PSA too, because the the chase quote really brought out a lot of other people saying that like, okay, this confirms what I believe to know about Joe Burrow and that he would prioritize winning over being the highest paid quarterback, right? He has that trait that people equate to Tom Brady, right? Because Tom Brady never signed a deal that made him the highest paid quarterback in the NFL for a multitude of reasons that we don't have to get into. But I just want to say this, like, even though we have an idea of who Joe Burrow is and some of these athletes are, I feel like there's a hypocrisy that happens here. Fans, they expect players to be competitors all the time on the field, right? Compete every single down, compete every play, compete every week like it's your last. Always want to win for my team. And that changes the instant the plane stops and you get to the negotiating table. Then it's about, okay, do what's best for the team, right? Do what's best to win. Put your competitive edge to the side. And that's asking players at this level, these athletes at this level to go against what I believe to be like is their nature. Like these guys aren't just competitive on the field. They're just competitors in general. And it doesn't matter what amount of money makes Joe Burrow or anyone at his position to be the highest paid player, not only at his position, but in the entire NFL. It's not about what X amount of money makes you happy. It's about beating the next guy. And it's not just exclusive to quarterbacks. It's just, it's exclusive to anybody like these guys, like their competitive drive is so much bigger and greater than any of us feeble minded people could possibly fathom. So I, I hate the notion of thinking that a player wouldn't want to be the highest paid player at his position for the sake of keeping his team competitive when there are ways to still achieve that status as the number one paid player while also still helping the team. And I, I just, I get really bothered by it because I've seen it so much, so much already this offseason. And this chase quote really ex accentuated those quotes coming out of the woodwork. Like, of course, Joe Burrow would, would prioritize winning. No, Joe Burrow is a competitor and there's nothing wrong with him wanting to be paid $52, $55 million per year because he's earned that. He's earned the right to be the highest paid quarterback in the NFL. And if that's what he wants to do, then everyone should be supportive of that. Everyone should be supportive of it. And I think they... Also, uh, while I think that the Bengals will will do whatever they can to keep Higgins and Chase, um, you know, there there is kind of a, a leap of faith that's going to need to be taken by the fan base and whatnot in terms of like, hey, you know, if one or the another, both other players leave, whatever, the fact that this team has kind of done this next man up, plug and play type of thing, not that it's easy to replace those guys, Higgins and Chase, duh, but you know, this coaching staff has shown a little bit of a penchant to be able to 
plug and play different guys uh, and still have effectiveness, particularly when you have that quarterback and you have that head coach. I know it sounded like you did a little bit of a mic drop there. I don't know if that was your mic drop, John. Yeah, that was. Get on out of here. Okay, I love it. I'm just going to do something. Uh, I, I thought we were going to maybe – I thought we were going to be on the same page with this one, but I'm just going to do a little A.J. Green love fest for my mic drop here. He announced earlier this week that he is retiring an outstanding career. I see a lot of talk, John, that there is – you know, A.J. Green is not a Hall of Famer. And there are numbers to back up that that sentiment. But there are, you know, the string of consecutive Pro Bowls. What was it, six or seven, I think? Um, the thousand-yard seasons, the, just the unbelievable acrobatic plays that he made. Uh, there, were, there were times, especially with how he's built, how he stretched the field and everything, uh, Moss had a, probably a little bit of more speed on him, Randy Moss did, but there were Moss-like a lot of Moss like plays with AJ green. Um, and I don't like to, com- I, I, personally, I just don't like the complete dismissal of him being a hall of fame player because of the impact he had on the Cincinnati Bengals, the impact he had on the NFL. I know he came in with Julio Jones, by the way, if anybody's wondering Julio Jones had a lot of significant injuries in his career too. Um, but I, it, it's a recency bias a little bit with AJ green. Obviously you look back and you go, well, Here we are in 2023. It was probably 2016, 2017 when he was truly still a dominant receiver in the NFL. And then you look at the injuries that kind of happened here. But, John, that is the pick. Uh, I remember hearing on a local radio station out my way that the Bengals had they not gone with a if if A.J. Green was gone or if Von Miller was on the board, Von Miller was going to be the pick by Marvin Lewis in that draft. I, I still contend that while Andy Dalton stepped in admirably and took over a, a really tumultuous time in Bengals history with Carson Palmer leaving and they needed th- them needing a quarterback and Andy Dalton likely outperforming when you really look at everything likely outperforming everyone's expectations that he that we all had for him as a rookie AJ Green was a huge reason why the Cincinnati Bengals had that string of playoff appearances, division titles, everything from 2011 through 2015. And he was a guy that, you know, I love Chad, and I think there is a strong, strong argument to still be made that Chad was a better Bengals wide receiver than A.J. Green. I think you could also find ways to argue the reverse of that in some respects. And one of those is that I saw A.J. Green step up in those Steelers games and put up touchdowns and numbers when – Chad sometimes would disappear, whether that's on him, whether that's on the quarterback or what have you. The big games, the divisional games, and you know, you look at how he torched the, the Baltimore Ravens. Chad did that a lot as well, by the way. I I just I can't I can't tell you how much high regard I have for AJ Green and and I, you know, congratulations on a great career. Just a guy that also always kind of seemed to do things the right way. It was always kind of odd that Jalen Ramsey thing because it was like whoa I, I i don't know this aj green but always even keeled always had the right things to say family guy just did things the right way and made a hell of a lot of fun plays to watch for the cincinnati Bengals. won a lot of games arguably single-handedly for the team in a lot of respects but you know when you look at him and you look at the tandem of geno atkins carlos dunlap and to a lesser extent andy dalton 
there were all big reasons that the Bengals had a major turnaround during a terrible, what could have been a very terrible time in their history and uh, can't credit number 18 enough. AJ and Gina were the reasons why it was the most successful five-year stretch in franchise history. And that's, that's weird to say like a, a wide receiver and a three technique, but like that was the case. Both guys very softly spoken out of Georgia. We still haven't heard more than 10 words out of Gino Atkins's mouth ever since he joined <laughs> the Pingles 12 years ago, but it's very fitting, right? Gino just walks into the sunset without saying a single word, no announcement of his, of his retirement, just a family man who just is perfectly content. And AJ with, in the in the same year that JJ Watt and Tom Brady retire, like he's not concerned at all about not being the first ballot Hall of Famer, not a Hall of Famer in general. At his peak, AJ Green was a Hall of Famer, but that's yep. that's the argument, right? Like, the, how much does longevity matter in these discussions, especially at a position that's so log jammed at receiver? It doesn't matter to me if AJ Green never makes it to the Hall of Fame because his impact it's it, it stand it will stand the test of time, and it still speaks volumes to be just 2011 man just immediately comes in and establishes himself as just a solid, not a, not a solid, a great number one wide receiver. Star. The, Star. the year after Chad Johnson leaves, right? Like a, a kid like me, you know, a little piece of crap, 13 years old, loves Chad Johnson growing up. The reason why, you know, I was following the Bengals in the first place, and then immediately the team gets this guy, and he's doing things that I've never seen a wide receiver do. Like I, I, I watched Randy Moss growing up and, and players like that, but the way that AJ would just, pluck these balls out of the air and it was just the ultimate screw it aj's down there somewhere right and he would just always come up with these plays that i've never seen before and this dominating six seven year stretch that he was on where he made seven consecutive pro bowls when he had six a thousand yard seasons like he was just an amazing player to watch every single it felt like an honor to watch him every single week because he knew more times than not he was going to step up and make a play so at his peak he's one of the best receivers that i've ever seen he deserves to be in the conversation whether or not he gets in is is pretty relevant to me because i know for a fact that he will come back to pagor stadium and his name will be up in the ring of honor soon and i think unfortunately for him he's going to be in that uh kind of in the same situation if i'm just looking at my crystal ball here he might be in that same situation as ken anderson ken riley where you gotta wait uh you're deserving but you gotta wait and you gotta hope that you know, after some of these people that have won Super Bowls and maybe had, you know, other accolades that uh, from more popular teams that get in first, maybe AJ has to wait. I, I still say I know the numbers maybe don't stack up against some, but I still say, like you said, that six or seven year stretch was just pure dominance. It really was. And there, the highlight real catch after highlight real catch. And if the Bengals had just even an ounce of postseason success with him during that stretch, um, and that's not on him, by the way. Uh, he had that big touchdown against the Steelers in that playoff game. That was a very good chance that the Bengals could have moved on. But um, I, I still think that he he deserves Hall of Fame recognition, probably down the road. But the, his name's got to got to keep coming up. Uh, as is Geno Atkins too. I mean, obviously he's got to be a guy that's in there for you know behind Aaron Donald, really the the. the and you can argue maybe Fletcher Cox. I mean, and there is interior defensive linemen that were the best of their generation. Well, I think that the AJ argument to me will always come back to like, he legit carried an offense for years. Like it, it, if the, he wasn't on the field, that offense does absolutely nothing. And that's still accounting for how good Eifert and Muhammad Sanu and Marvin Jones was. But AJ was 
was the ultimate catalyst to make an offense move with a quarterback that had its limitations, right? And it's go, it's going to be an ar- another talking point. Like, what if AJ had like a better quarterback at his peak, right? Not not to disrespect Andy, but you know, you have to wonder how that production would stand up in that time period. And the fact that he was still productive with, by all accounts, like an average quarterback, it, it still boosts it or it should boost his case in general. And Geno Atkins, I mean, he's going to Geno Atkins made the 2010s All Decade team, which gives him a pretty clear pass. To eventually yeah. get into the Hall of Fame, and unfortunately, AJ didn't receive that same treatment. Even though you could make the easy argument that he was a top three receiver of the 2010s for sure. Yeah. Well, that's going to do it for us. Talking some unfortunately off-season Bengals. Thank you for joining us live. Thank you for downloading the show after the fact. If you're new here, you can get the show on your favorite audio streamer, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google, uh, all the major ones were there. And then, of course, underneath John, there you can subscribe to the YouTube channel by clicking the show icon subscribe and then of course click the bell to be notified when we go live when new content is available we're gonna hammer you with all kinds of stuff coming up here we take a brief brief break but we still came at you here on our usual wednesday night gonna take a you know took a little break but we're we're gonna get you know listener questions live and all kinds of different fun stuff interviews all that we'll get you more we promise john thank you sir uh been a fun Bengals season came up a little short but um fun regardless and we'll keep talking about what's ahead for them coming up take care dude my hat's tip to you aj